Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode today with Dr. Andy Letcher. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Andy, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here, Grant. Enjoy talking to you about oral surgery. I was going to say we got a lot of great feedback on some of the discussions we've had on full arch reconstruction. And um, I think your knowledge about implant surgery and, and how to do this and bone grafting, what we'll discuss today is just invaluable. So we were thinking we could just kind of talk a little bit about your techniques for kind of reconstructing deficient ridges and different tools, I guess, you have in your tool belt to reconstruct basically bone that is deficient. Can you just kind of talk us through how you walk through that with a patient who's in need of grafting? I do a lot of bone grafting and for many years, it's kind of been, you know, one of the biggest part of my implant practice is reconstructing ridges. But, you know, as an oral surgeon, it's, you know, we're kind of the people set up for that. And when I was at Ohio State, I did this master's degree in bone grafting and I came to Atlanta and I've always felt a autogenous bone is the gold standard. And so when I do sinus lists, I pretty much have always just put autogenous bone in there. It used to be from the hips, although now I do a lot of cases with BMP and other materials, which we can talk about. But on ridge reconstruction, like to start with a simple procedure, like a lot congenitally missing lateral incisor, and that's probably one of the more common implants placed because it's a common tooth to be missing. You know, a lot of 16, 17 year old children come in, they're missing that. And for most of those patients, there's a concave defect in the buckle. And my go-to procedure is to do a block graft from the ramus. And so, you know, I probably do one or two of those a week, maybe still. And, you know, you want to put that implant in and have their tooth on there when they're done growing. And one of my guidelines is try to, by the time they go to college, be done with the procedure, you know, get their final tooth by then. You know, it's rare that they're not mature enough to put that tooth on there. So I usually see them when they're about 16, for example, and they'll come in and, you know, there's a lot of cases I see where a block graft isn't done. I do a lot of redos. I mean, I think there's people that are good at it. I just don't see the ones that succeed. But I see a lot of cases where the implant's placed in that bone. They put a three millimeter, 3.2 millimeter implant in there. It's kind of angled buckly. And it's a big challenge for the restorative dentist to be able to fit parts on and, and block those metal pieces, even zirconia abutments with porcelain or something aesthetic. And so you don't really have the implant angled right if you don't reconstruct that concave defect. You know, a lot of it's at the apex, you need that bone too. So for those patients, 
I usually do the wisdom teeth when I do this. I'll put them to sleep. And if I'm doing third molars, I make a third molar incision. I just make a big release in the ramus. And I'll open that up. If they've already had the third molars out, I'll make a vestibular incision like I do for sagittal split, basically. And then when I started out, I didn't have recept saw in my office. I used round birds to outline that. But I have recept saws mostly like for the last 25 years, the ones I use for orthodontic surgery. First of all, I open up the maxilla. I'll make a crestal incision over that number. Say we're doing number 10. Crestal incision over that. I do sulcular incisions instead of a papilla releasing incision. And I believe if you do it correctly, it looks better. So if I'm doing number 10, I'll do sulcular incision around nine and at least halfway around eight. Then I'll go sulcular incision around 11 and 12 and buck release between 12 and 13. So I reflect that flap and then open it up and uh, take caliper, measure how wide the bone is, usually seven or eight millimeters, it's almost the same, but I always got a caliper and measure it, just my protocol. And I release that tissue, take little pickups, pull the tissue, and you want to release the periosteum because one of the key components is tension-free closure. You don't want to make like five cuts in it, the periosteum, that's part of your blood supply. So I spend a minute or so looking at that, lifting it up, being careful, and just making one or two releases so you can close out tension. So then I've measured the width of the bone. It's usually seven or eight millimeters for a lateral incisor. And then I go to my ramus, expose that with my incision, like I would for a sagittal split, although, although much smaller, of course. And I'll take my recip saw, make the anterior cut. I'll take my caliper and mark where I make the posterior cut. It's a seven millimeter block. I usually do nine millimeters. And I try and flare them out a little bit apically, so it's a little bit wider at the base. Just because when you put it in the mouth, you don't want to be too skinny, you know, at the apex. And so those are those two cuts, and you got to be careful with them. And, and I, I don't go real deep with that sagittal spot. I try and just see it just a touch of blood, like you do for orthodontic surgery. And then I'll follow that with a round bar to deepen it, the, the width of a regular, what is that, a number two round bar, number eight, the regular one we use for, I don't even know the number, but for third molars, if, if you use that. But the inferior cut, I've got a little circular saw. I cut. It goes on your handpiece and it just makes a slot. I do the inferior cut before I had that saw. It's like, I think Salvin sells that. It's an attachment that goes on your handpiece. So that makes that inferior cut and the saw blade is only like three millimeters deep. So you're not going to hit the nerve with it. And then the top cut, your sagittal cut, I'll usually start with a fissure bird, either do the whole thing with a fine fissure or you start with my fissure and then do the saw blade. So I get that block carved out, but I take my, what I've done the last seven or eight years, I've taken my round bar and outlined those vertical cuts and the inferior cut. You know, it takes me a couple of minutes. I put an Austin in there so I can get good visualization. So, and I save a little bit of that bone in a bone trap. In the past, a few times I've popped that block off of the chisel and sometimes it breaks in half. You don't have the, you got two pieces instead of one long piece. And so that's why I take my round bar and I know my cuts are deep and the round bar, you're not going to go too deep, you know, hit the nerve because you can only put a round bar so deep. And that way I can spend time making sure I'm not too deep. And then I take a little thin chisel at the bottom edge of that block and one at the top. They've got these little handles on them. KLS sells them. And I pop that block off. So that's my block graft. Probably half the time you see some of the nerve sitting down there. And I just take a bone file, get rough edges. We try not to irrigate the nerve if we see it. And then 
flush it out thoroughly and I close it. And I used to do just a running three oak chromate, but they would open up once in a while because a sagittal split, you know, I just do running and they never open up. But these patients can chew. And so they I put an interrupted one or two interrupted in that little two centimeter incision and then run it too so they don't open the wound up later. So that's my block graft. And I go to the jaw and I just whittle it in shape and secure it. There's a few principles. Um, Tom Collins, like in 94 or five, I think I mentioned this in one of my earlier podcasts, gave this talk, you know, on how to do block grass. And so one of the principles is you want attention-free closure. Another principle is you want the outer edges of it smooth so you don't like have a sharp edge on the mucosa. A very important principle is you use two screws instead of one because you want this thing rigid so it doesn't move. And so I use KOS 1.5 millimeter diameter screws. I've tried one, two and one seven and one twos shear off the one seven is a little bit too big, you know, and two L's too big. The one five seems to be the magic size. And so I hold that in my hand. I, and I put a couple of round dots on there to offset it with a round burr. And then I drill that hole with that um, one five drill bit. I pre-drill the screw holes because it's hard to hold that block in there and not have it move around. I put two screws, you know, one at the coronal part, one at the apical part, you know, and just to secure it. I drill the screw holes with the 1.5 drill bit. And then I actually run a five millimeter screw in there and tap it with a screw, instead of their tap. And then I put that block in place. I'll use the Austin and Secure Minnesota, hold it in place, position it so you can get a nice horizontal buildup. You really can't get a lot of vertical with this block. You can, but I am. Usually in this case, you're just doing a horizontal augmentation. So you've got it whittled in the shape. You know, that's one of the time parts of the procedure takes time is whittle that so it fits flush. And so it takes a little skill, but, you know, it's like it takes 10 minutes to 15 minutes to whittle it with a bone burr. I use nine millimeter long screws, sometimes 11 millimeters. And I put those two screws in there. And then sometimes I'll take some osseous coagulum from the trap, pack it around there. And then I take some PRF membranes and lay that on top of it and secure it. PRF membranes are nice because it's really made the success, you know, like 98, 99%. And then we close it. Then the closure, I use 5-0 on Vicro or 5-0 Vicro on a tapered needle. And the tapered, you don't want to poke holes through it. And so I'll put three or four on the crest. And then I do vertical mattress sutures on the papillas where I made my um, incisions along the other teeth. And if you do these nice vertical mattress sutures, you're going to not leave a scar and you're going to regain all that tissue. So that's my block graft technique. And then um, I wait six months and I've probably done, you know, 500,000. I've done a lot of these. And I've gone back at four or five months. And sometimes it'll, if you put in the implant, it'll kind of spread out because most implants have a little taper. So I go by the calendar and I don't cheat on six months, maybe three to five days. But I just tell the patients, you've got to do your schedule. So you give me six months for that block graft to mature. And I think the time window is six to nine months to come back. So I don't go sooner than that. I think it takes that long to heal, really does. So we usually... In our office, we would put the implant in and we'll make it pre-make a guide and then we'll scan it and we deliver them a temporary tooth that day too. It takes an hour and a half for my lab to make a PMMA provisional tooth we put on there. Then we let that tooth sit there for five or six months. And then they, you could go back at four months and start the final, but they usually give it five or six months depending on the school schedule. One of the nice things about putting a temporary tooth on there, if they're like 16 and a half, 17, you think, oh, they might be growing. So you put a temporary tooth on there, if they're growing, you'll know it. They can leave that in there for a year. 
they can always come back and add the porcelain a little bit, but you get really nice aesthetics when you use autogenous bone. When you go back in to put the implant in and of course take the screws out, do you do anything differently with how you make your incision to get those screws out or what do you do? Oh yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, taking the screws out, I used to make two little mucosal stab incisions over them and like it takes a little time, a few minutes to get them out. I make one little vertical incision above the two of them now and I put my woodson in there and I dissect down and get those screws and they're hard to get out sometimes. You have to be careful not to strip the heads. That's why if you're putting them in and you kind of strip the head out, putting them in, you want to take them out and replace them with a new screw. I've had a few cases where the patients come back like 15 months later and you really can't get the screws out. Sometimes I've had to take a fine fissure bar, open that up, like draw around the head of that screw and put a wire puller on there and unthread them, you know, and once or twice in the many years I've had to draw right through the screws, which really bangs up your drill bits if you can't get them out. They'll integrate, you know, so <laughs> it's a little bit of work getting out. But I usually don't touch the ridge. Sometimes I'll take my bone burr and just put a little, flatten it out a little bit, the ridge. So it's a vertical, like a vestibular incision or where, where is that? Oh, no. um, so I make my crestal incision first, just, just a little crestal incision, expose your bone on the crest. And then I take my finger and I push over the top of those screws for like 30 seconds to get all the edema out. They, they're kind of purple and they kind of stick through the gum tissue. So I make a vertical incision. Yeah, it's in the vestibule, but it's a little vertical incision, maybe six millimeters long. I put a four-hole plane gut in there. You know, it heals up. So one thing I've learned, so if you're doing two sides, in the past, I thought, well, I'll take two blocks on one side so they're not sore. But when I do that, they tend to, you're exposing a lot of the nerve if you do expose the nerve, and they can have a lot of paresthesia long-term. So I feel you're better off taking a block from each side rather than expose a big, long stretch of nerve. Times I've run into people have a lot of paresthesias when you, I mean, sometimes you have to do it if you're doing three block grafts, you know, those patients thinking that something about exposing, you know, you do jaw surgery and they get numb. They don't seem to bother them, but if you do a block graft, <laughs> they're not really expecting numbness as much. I mean, they are, because I tell them they don't like it as much. That's one of the downsides of that procedure. It's pretty aggressive to take a block of bone, but, but you also have like an 18 year old person and it's their front tooth and you want to look good for their whole life. So. And real quick, when you were harvesting the block, you know, you made your cuts with your sagittal and your circular saw and then the round burr. And you said you use the, the KLS chisels or osteotomes. Are you using those like right on the crest of the ridge or is it just on the inferior cut or is it all around or where do you use those chisels at? I have two of them. When I used to do distraction, I also Janice, they sold these chisels. 10 inches long. They got a little handle on them and they got thin blades. Like one's like the blades, like maybe seven millimeters, six millimeters wide. The other one's like four, but they're pretty thin. You can fit them in a little cut. So I put the tall one on the crest and I give it just a slight twist pressure. Then the skinnier one I put down along that, that mesial cut and I kind of pry the block off. That's helped me even break those bones. And the good thing about that is if you haven't cut all the way through that cortical plate, you'll get a feel for it. You know, sometimes it's hard to visualize down there. So it gives me a feel and you can pry those off gently. I take some time in these procedures to do them. So, you know, I charge a fair amount for them too, so I can take my time and do them right. So 
And then do you put anything over that donor site and tip a you know, gel foam or grafting or would you just leave it? I just leave it. Yeah. I, I know many, many years ago they sold HA blocks and things to put in there, but it's like, I just sew it up, flush it out thoroughly. I've come back years later. You have a little bit of a defect there. It's softer bone. It's not quite a stout to the other side if you come back within a couple of years. So. And so you're using these Ramus block grafts for, is it mostly like maxillary anterior defects or when do you find that it's a good indication? Well, I use it everywhere in the mouth. Anterior maxilla, anterior mandible. And so that's a hard place to treat, you know, lower incisor. That's a whole other topic. It's one of the most difficult implants to place because just there's zero room for error. But I do posterior ridge reconstructions with them too. And that's where sometimes you need a bigger block graft. They're good for horizontal and you can get some vertical built up with them. It's a, that's always been the challenge for me is building a ridge vertically. You know, being kind of like one of the bone grafters in our city, I get a lot of people sent to me that have had failed grafts from element grafts. Yeah, I mean, I have grafts that fail now and then too, but if you put um, like cadaver bone in there, a bios or something, and it fails, and they come back, it's a more difficult treatment because there's scar tissue in the blood supply is not as great. So success is poor. And that's why I like to do the bone graft first, because you want to give them the best shots, especially in the posterior mandible. Posterior mandible is always a challenge. It's like, it's hard, you know, you're dissecting around the middle nerve. And and most of those people, they need some vertical and buckle. And a lot of those patients, I'll put some titanium mesh in there. Is there like a certain level of, how would you say, thinness or degree of bone loss you'd have to go to the ramus graft versus just aloe graft or a mesh like how do you make that determination well in my hands you need the ramus grafts work if you have something to screw it onto you know if, if you have like a big vertical defect in the anterior mandibles no you need to screw that block into something because you need that blood supply coming from behind it and so they're very good for horizontal augmentation, at least in my hands. And you can have laid them on the top two to build them up. And the success isn't like in the 90%. It's a lot lower than that, at least in my hands. And that's kind of, you know, it's like when those things fail, it's a bummer for the patient because they spent money. You know, you burn a few months, you know, waiting for it to heal. And you've learned you've got to reboot your treatment plan. And so... For many years, I've done block grafts. I've tried it in every situation, I feel. I haven't done a lot of Gore-Tex at all. I've done a lot of titanium mesh. Now I've been using that custom titanium mesh that the company that sells BIOS makes where you do a CT scan. I've only done three of them, and I just um, get ready to uncover my first one. It just came out because one of the problems with bending titanium mesh is you, know, you have sharp edges, and if you get it a hissance, you know, people say, oh, Within like six weeks, you're in trouble, or after six weeks, it's not. But my experience is it never heals as great if you have a dehiscence. And so I've put BMP underneath there. I've had a lot of experience with BMP. And so let me talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Can you just describe your technique with the mesh and BMP and all that? Yeah. So the bone morphogenic protein, you know, it came out in like 2007. The FDA approved it. And I used to put under titanium mesh. I go, this is great. You know, I mix it with some PRP. It needs some cells. So you can't just lay a BMP and think it's going to grow bone. At least for most cases, it's um, the dog studies that were done on it. 
dogs, their periosteum and endosteum on the bone both provide stem cells and osteoblasts. While in humans, your periosteum doesn't provide osteoblasts. And so it's just the bone does. So if you're going to put BMP to do a ridge reconstruction, you need to perforate it bones. And I used to put some under mesh and I got marginal results with only using BMP when it first came out. And it takes a long time, several months. So now if I'm utilizing BMP under titanium mesh, I always harvest some bone. And a lot of my cases, I use a max crafter chaos sells them for like $70. I make an incision in the posterior ramus and um, just graft bone. I do this for sinuses. So I'll take shavings and I'll mix it with a BMP and I mix it with PRF or PRP. And so I think you need to put all those growth factors in there. And when I do that and I get a nice closure, it works very well. And I also give it eight months. So if I have a vertical defect to fill in the posterior mandible, I would scan with a CT scanner, get the custom titanium mesh. It's pretty awesome. They come in, it just pops into the bone <laughs> and you've got screw holes pre-designed and you screw it into place. Before that, I'd spend a lot of time bending the titanium mesh and it's like, it costs just as much. The custom um, titanium mesh is about six or $700. It's about a two week turnaround time. And so you scan it, you send it to the company, my lab tech does this for me. And then they send back to prototype, you approve it and they'll make your mesh and they overnight it to you in a few days. So it's about a start to finish two weeks from when you get your 3D cone beam scan. And you also want to do like a trio scan. So you need an impression. They need your intraoral scanner and they need the cone beam scan. And so my experience with BMP, I haven't exposed one of the custom mesh, but in regular mesh, I go eight or nine months now. I really like to give it nine months. And I put a tigeous bone in with the BMP, cut the BMP in little pieces, perforate the bone and PRF. I still use PRP. I use both PRP and PRF. I think PRP has better growth factors when mixed with digest bone. And then nowadays I'll put PRF membranes on top of it. So I'll get both vertical and horizontal with that. The meetings you go to, you show these, these paradigms show these beautiful ridge reconstructions using like BIOS or allografts and Gore-Tex membranes. And I've tried those. I'm like, how do they do it? It's like, Maybe they're showing their best cases. Maybe they get really predictable results and maybe they're just super good surgeons. You know, you think about it, you really need, you need living cells in that area. So that's why I like autogenous bone. And where do you harvest that from usually just from the site or, or close to it? Oh, no, that's what I was saying a minute ago. Usually I'll do a separate site. Well, sometimes I'll same okay. site. Like, Sometimes I'll make my incision, but I go to the posterior ramus with that max grafter and I spray it bone. Got it. Okay. I do that for the sinuses too. So it's a lot of work. And so I've been doing it for like 20 years. I was at a meeting with my friend, Jeff Saxon, old surgeon in Boston. He goes, hey, man, you got to try this max grafter. So the problem is it's a lot of work on your hand. And so I like open my incision up when I know I'm going to do it. I harvest some bone, put a little metal dish. And I'll come back every eight or 10 minutes and harvest a little more. You do that three or four times, you know, each time you do it for two minutes, you get a lot of bone. You can get a lot of bone that way. So then you have some isotogenous bone. If you try and do it all at once, it's kind of hard to rest you and you get bored doing it. So And who does that? Do you know where to get that from? The 
scraper. I buy those from Chaos. Yeah. If you buy like six at a time, they're like a hundred dollars. If you buy six, they're like seventy dollars, but they're not expensive. It doesn't cost any more than a jar of bone, you know. So I use the KOS 1.5 screws to screw that mesh in too. You do. Okay. I was going to comment just, I know the times I've used mesh in the past, that's the big challenge is doing everything you can to avoid dehiscence. What what are the things you do to kind of really make sure you don't get a dehiscence or at least limit the chance of that happening? Yeah. So releasing your flap is number one. You want really nice tension-free closure. And there's tricks to that too. It's like you want to release the periosteum and um, I've been to those meetings three or four times in Orlando. I mentioned that on this podcast, but he puts his finger in there and just pushes the tissue apart. He doesn't lingual the mandible and then in the maxilla. So I used to just tug with my periosteum, but now I'll t- if I'm doing titanium mesh, I'll take my index finger and just kind of stretch the tissue out with my finger. If you think about it, it's very gentle. It kind of tugs the tissue on so You still make your periosteal release, but that just kind of opens it up in a gentle way instead of cutting a lot of tissue. And so that's key, I think, is getting that tissue released. Um, number two is I use the 5-0 Vicro on or the, I should, I keep saying on Vicro, I do that in skin, but in mouth you can use dyed, but it's 5-0 Vicro on a tapered needle. It's very expensive sutures, they're like $15. But I really close it, sew them up. You know, one of my general dentists is watching. He says, you put a lot of sutures in there. What are you doing? Sewing a rug up? You know, you want to get nice general closure. The tapered needle doesn't poke holes in the tissue. And then also, I like to put the PRF membranes over that too. That's kind of been key. That's really improved the success rate. And so if you get a nice closure, you put PRF membranes on top of your titanium mesh. I used to put that little piece of BMP on top of there. But now I put membranes on top of there, kind of smooths it out, and then just give it some time. And I know the the Vicryl's resorbable, but I've often found that sometimes I still have to go back and remove those when they're there like multiple weeks and they can kind of start causing pain. Do you ever remove them or that you just leave them? Oh, yeah. I, I take them out at three weeks. So I, we've got a protocol. They come in at one week and then at three weeks, and my assistants know not to take them out till three weeks. And so... Because they, they they hurt a little bit too. I let my assistants do it because you know they absorb fluid and you pull them through the tissue. The patients wince those little five hole sutures. I like to give it three weeks, and then if, if you're going to get a wound breakdown, you're usually going to see it three weeks. So that's kind of a good guideline. If they then they're at three weeks and hasn't broken down, you're pretty comfy that you're going to get a good result. But I always take the, the micro sutures out. Sometimes my vertical release I put in full chromic just so I don't have to. Um, close it or take the stitches out and then i mean these procedures both the mesh and the, the ramus craft i mean they're pretty technique sensitive and lots of different types of equipment required like how much do you just ballpark are you charging for these procedures so we can get an idea so um i charge for a block graft i charge about 4800 hours it's not cheap it takes like an hour and a half Plus my anesthesia and the PRS. So it's about a $5,500 procedure for the patient. You know, if I'm doing two sides, the second side, I'll do like 2,200, you know, it's like, I kind of look at how much time I'm going to spend. So it adds up, it makes an expensive tooth, you know, when you're doing a lateral. <laughs> but so then if I'm doing their wisdom teeth at the same time, I'll take the cost of a third molar off, you know, my third molar is like $800. So like, so I'll deduct it by that because I'm going to make some money on the third molars. You know, I'm already down there. So that 
eases the bill a little bit in the patients. I kind of do those things. You know, I try, you kind of keep costs in mind. If I'm doing a lot of block crafts, I kind of package it together. Yeah, so the screws are like $30 a piece. And KOS, like if you're doing a doing these, I asked them to put a 1-5 system in my office on consignment, and they do, you know, so you don't have to buy the whole system. They may, you know, if you buy your instruments from them, and it's not a big cost if you're going to do some bone grafting, and they just replenish the screws for you. So you really just have to buy the screws. That'll lower your cost too. Yeah, I feel like doing these procedures – probably there's most patients don't appreciate, you know, like how important this is and how technique sensitive and just all that goes into having success. It's probably important as well to kind of convey that to the patient that, Hey, this is something really critical to the success of the implant. Here's all the reasons why it's this expensive stuff like that. Do you have that whole discussion with them? Yeah, I do. And it's like, I know I lose cases because they can't afford it. I don't feel like I have a really highly successful alternative. You know, for me doing allograss and Gore-Tex, I just don't feel like I'm going to get a nice result and good aesthetics. So, and if they go somewhere else, that's it. But I don't want to like compromise it and be left with a ugly front tooth because that's going to follow you a long time. So it's a tough sell sometimes, but I just thought this wouldn't do. You know, I've got a price sheet. I told you in one of my earlier podcasts, I've got this price sheet with, single to one implant, second implant on the front page of it's got my sign stuff cost, which is like $1,800. Block graft fee, you know, which is one of my more expensive procedures, but it takes a lot of time. You know, like sign stuff takes me 15, 20 minutes. And so I don't charge that much for it. And pretty easy. Nice. Does Picos, um, does he have a Ramus grafting video or is, where would you kind of show our listeners to go to see videos about doing stuff like this people's probably has that he actually years ago started out his main teaching was black grass you know reconstructed the mandible it's kind of weird like tom collins wrote this book remember that big bell reconstructive surgery it's like a five volume maybe a three volume book you know bell out of parkland tom collins wrote a chapter on the implants this is like probably published in 92 or three that's got like detail about this procedure but Picos probably teaches that course. And there's, not, I don't see a lot of courses taught in that block craft, actually, you know. And then I was going to ask, I know there's different places you can harvest block grafts, like the symphysis. And of course, you get it from the hip in different places. But do you do any of these other sites or do you like mostly stick to the ramus? I've done the symphysis before and um, they have a lot of pain afterwards. I haven't done a synthesis in 20 years. It's just like, it's weird. You do a genioplasty and you cut that and they heal fine. And like a year later, it's like nothing happened. But you take a block of bone out of the synthesis. It's just like, it seems like that's, there's a dysesthesia or just uncomfort there that falls for a long, long time. And so most guys don't do it. You get a nice piece of bone. It's nice and thick, you know. But maybe it was when I made the genioplasty type decision. Picos a soccer incision and maybe he had less pain and there's still people that do it. I just don't do it. If I need a big block, I like to do the titanium mesh. Well, that's really helpful. And I'm assuming we can, maybe we could post a, a link to on the show notes of this to some of the equipment that you're using and different things like that. So people can kind of yeah, that get might an be idea. Good. Sounds good. Any other kind of ridge augmentation techniques that you go to other than these two i mean i've done a lot of hips we need a lot i used to do a lot of hips but now that i've learned to do zygomas 
So here's what's happened in my practice. So, you know, reconstructing the posterior mandible is difficult. And the posterior maxilla are pretty much do a sinus lift. Rarely do you need to build the ridge up for vertical for aesthetics. All I just did a titanium mesh to build up for aesthetics and a premolar molar site. So usually in the upper, I could do the sinus lifts. If I'm doing the posture, you don't need so much vertical because you just have the sinus there. But you get people come in, they've got some posterior ridges they need to reconstruct it in the mandible. I'm like, so you can spend all this money rebuilding your jaw and the success rate isn't great. And you're going to put four implants per side and bridges. You're better off taking out your lower front teeth and we'll put do it all in four and for the same cost and do that unless, I mean, all in one, you get immediate teeth. And I feel that's like a better procedure. We do that in younger people now, just because success with a well done all in four, all in six prosthesis, hybrid zirconia prosthesis that's cleansable. It's easier for the patient. They are losing their front teeth. That's the downside of it. And so some people, they don't want that. But if I have a thin posture ridge, I probably won't do bilateral reconstruction with mesh out. That's all I'll offer was all for. I just I'm not going to do this. I don't like that treatment. So and in the max hill, you know, it's like same thing. A lot of times, if you've really got a lot of ridge reconstructions, that's when you want to start thinking about doing a full arch. Can you describe your sinus lift technique briefly for us? I pretty much, for many years, I only used autogenous bone until BMB came out. So like if I'm doing, say, 13 and 14, you know, 15 is missing, I'll make a crustal incision over 13 and 14, or sometimes you're taking 13 out, but I'll go one tooth front like to 12, and then I'll make a vertical release there, and then I'll make a release off the tuberosity, and I'll expose my maxilla like everybody does. You know, nice crustal incision so you have good buckle attached tissue. And then I take a round burr. And so I do my sinus lift and put the implants in the same day. And a normal thing, if I'm doing 13 or 14, if they're already missing, I'll get a guide made, even if it's um, pretty atrophic. And then I'll, I'll do a round burr, open a window up. And I used to like do this rectangle and then lift it up. But I pretty much just carve out the round burr, all the bone. And I'll start a little, little bit of the middle. Like say it's um, like a dime size. And so I'll start my opening. I'm pretty slow. That you always want a brand new burr. <laughs> so you don't have to push too hard on your handpiece. And drill into that. Once you get some of the membrane exposed, I'll push out a little bit with the anterocorrect. And I lift the membrane up and I'm just, then I expand my opening. And then I start making a rectangular opening. And I lift that membrane up. And I, you know, of course you want to do it without a tear. So I'm pretty gentle with that. And every membrane is different. Sometimes you have septae. And so you tease if you get a little bit of a hole, if you go elsewhere in your slice, so sometimes it'll release the membrane, it'll collapse that hole. If I do get a hole, I always put collar tape in there. I might just bring in the collar tape and we usually have PRF. And so I'll soak that in or spray some PRF in that and, and put that in there. And that's how I repair the holes. And every now and then you pull membranes trashed. And so, that's the bummer. I'll use two pieces of column tape to put that in. So if I get a ray trash membrane, I'll put my, my implants in and then I'll put my membrane in and then I'll do my bone graft. If you don't have a hole in your sinus membrane, I don't use column tape. People can do use different products, but um, I'd say half the time there's a little hole somewhere, you know, or a little thin spot. So for my bone graft material, 
my go-to is I harvest bone on that on the same side of ramus. I'll make a little vestibular incision and harvest bone with a max grafter and take shavings and I'll mix that with some PRF or PRP and pack that around the implants. If it's two implants, that's when I said sometimes I'll just keep going back and back. And when I make my flap, I'll harvest some bone, then I'll um, make my window, harvest some bone, and you can get a lot of bone and fill it, cover your implants up with that. When you mix it with PRF or PRP, it'll expand the volume. And so that's what I feel is gonna give you your best success, especially if it's really atrophic, you're gonna get three or four millimeters of bone. And if it's a really thin ridge, I'll just put a cover screw on the implant. If you've got some stability where your implant's like five millimeters in bone, I'll put a healing abutment on it and close it up because it's stable enough. You're not going to distract it. But nowadays, I do more and more without autogenous bone. I'll buy some BMP, extra, extra small kit of BMP. We'll cut a little pieces and I'll mix it with pure off and I'll mix it with some allograft and same thing as I use for my extraction site. I use pretty much Mineros, Kinsella's Allograft. And so a little bit about the BMP. So BMP is expensive. It's like 920 or 950 to buy an extra, extra small kit. But if you, they've got a deal, if you buy a dozen, you can get them for down to like 680 plus shipping. So it costs me about $700 for one. If you put them on your Amex, they give you another discount. <laughs> I guess the people don't pay them. My cost is like $712 or something like that per BMP. And so for our jaw surgeries and for everything. So we use it all the time. So I, I buy a dozen often. If you don't use it a lot, you can maybe get another oral surgeon and split some with you and buy a dozen. You'll get three oral surgeons, but it's got a long shelf life of a year or so. So, and if you just want to buy a kit, you know, buy a kit for 980. So one of my issues I have is like, who do I recommend BMP only or who do I recommend Max Crafter? <laughs> because when you use BMP only, the patients have like almost no pain. <laughs> and so if I'm using BMP, so I'll reconstitute, it takes like 15 minutes. And as soon as I put the liquid on the BMP, one of my assistants will take some of the minerals and they'll lay a, a coating of that minerals on top of it. So the minerals will absorb it too because they have like a collotape type carrier. It's a collagen carrier that absorbs it. But if you put minerals on there, Bob Marks mentioned this in a lecture, that that'll absorb it too. So that becomes your carrier as well. So we let that sit there for like 15. You want to make sure you give it the full 15 minutes. We'll cut that into a bunch of little pieces and I'll pack that around the implant. And I usually use some PRF as well along with it. And then we split that. If I'm doing BMP only and it's a really atrophic ridge, I give it eight months. Usually if it's a really atrophic ridge, only three moments, I like to take some shavings from the ramus, add to the BMP. But if they've got four or five millimeters of bone, I just use the BMP and the allograft. It's a pretty painless procedure for the patient. So for that one, if you want to know my prices, it's like I charge like my sinus fee, which is maybe... 1800 or something. And then I also charge about a thousand dollars or so or more for the BMP and the max grafter and all that the supplies. So I mean, like it's probably three grand for the science of plus your anesthesia and your implants. So, but it's a pretty quick procedure. You know, it's like the science of takes me maybe 15 minutes to lift that membrane up. So, um, but it's nice for the patient. Yeah, that's super nice. I was going to ask, so you take your round burr and you make your, you know, dime sized area. Are you taking the round burr so that you just have paper thin bone and then you're 
pushing that in with your curette or, or like an osteotome or you're tapping it in or how do you infracture that? I use my round burr pretty much down to the membrane. So sometimes there's a super thin layer of bone. It's kind of tough to see. So I basically get a nice finger hold of my <laughs> drill. So you can just do a feather touch until you see that membrane and you can kind of, your drill can bump it. If it's a really thin membrane, it's going to pull a hole in it. But a lot of them aren't that thin. You just done a really light touch. You can expand to maybe like a four or five millimeter diameter membrane and then push that away from the surrounding bone. You know, then I enlarge it and then I'll push it around more surrounding. And then once you get a big enough opening, you can put your crud in there and peel it away from the bone. So yeah, there's a little bit of just being gentle with that. I know some people are using like piezos and different things. Have you ever tried stuff like that or what's your experience oh. with that? I haven't bought a piezo. I'm sure it's nice. I just, I think it'd be slow. I don't have a problem, you know, my sinus list. So, I mean, it's not worth selling down and, and spending that money on it. But that's just me. Because I tried a piezo several times and it was just so much slower. I went back to the round burr and it's just, yeah. I feel like if you're doing what you're saying and being gentle and being careful and you got a sharp burr and you know what you're doing, it's just like 10 times faster with the round burr. Okay, well that that's great to hear that technique because it's that's helpful. And so, are you putting BMP in almost all of your sinus grafts? You know, once in a while, if someone's out of budget, you know, I give people breaks in prices now and then. If they got to do a lot, I got to give them a discount. I just harvest bone if it's one, but I probably say seventy five percent of my sinus lift I use BMP, and probably fifty percent of those I'll add autogenous bone to it just because. Like I had a case two days ago, an older gentleman, he's like 76, he had really crummy veins. He had enough veins, I could get an IV and sedate him, but I couldn't draw a pure F. And so if I'm doing BMP and allograft, I like to get something autogenous growth factors in there, like pure F. But in him, I couldn't draw a pure F. So I had made a little incision in the ramus and harvested some bone to supplement the BMP. Because, um, you know, BMP is great but I really think it needs bone cells added to it. And that's kind of where I think people get in trouble with it. It's not a magic cure-all. It needs to have a source of bone cells. And if you think about the sinus, there's not a lot of bone there. You know, you got your window, you're taking a lap, you got like, how's that BMP going to jump through your opening? <laughs> you know, but it works. They did their research on it and it works. They use large kits of BMP on the research that was done in the early 2000s. And so in my hands, I like to add minimum PRF, you know, because people use without BMP, they put allograft and, and PRF in there, it works. But adding BMP, it's just um, when you really think of the whole scheme, what the tooth is going to cost them, it's not a big additional cost factor to really give you some success. And then maybe you said this already, but when you're doing the simultaneous implant placement, at what point are you putting your graft in? Are you like drilling and then put the graft in through the sinus opening and then place the implants? Or, you know, how do you sequence that? I always put my implants in first. One of the advantages of doing that is like, you know how much bone you need. because And you know where to put the bone. It's amazing sometimes I do my sinus lift and I've got all this area around 14, 15 exposed, but the implants are way in front of that. And you're like... You're packing bone, you know, anteriorly around the corner and you made your opening further posterior. So it's just, it's a nice technique to do your implants at the same time. It's like, I've almost never done it separately unless, you know, the crest has a hole in it. Then I'll do the 
bridge built up first. I don't really think there's a reason to stage it. It's, you're better off doing it unless you've got an eggshell, you know, maxilla. I have the same philosophy. I 90% of the time put my implants simultaneously. And I just feel like almost to the, the implants are like almost like tenting screws that hold the membrane up. And there's just so many good, great benefits. Sometimes I've noticed if I just only put the graft, like after I put the implants, sometimes I get a hard time getting the graft on that. What do you call it? More, not mesial, but like more towards the palatal side. Cause the implants kind of block my ability to push the graft on the other side of those implants. Like if I take a cone beam, sometimes, you know, I'll see there's not much graft on that medial side of those implants. How do you get bone around the entire implant? I guess maybe I lift more membrane up and I leave a bigger space there. That's the first place I put my bone to. So I use like a a dental crate, like a medium-sized one and a freer. And the first thing I do is I push it around the back of those implants. And if you actually, that max crafter is such a great thing. It's inexpensive. The patient's going to have a little bit of silver jaw. you got to give them an ice pack, you know. It's going to make your success rate jump way up. And it's a little bit of morbidity for the patient. It takes a little bit longer. You know, it makes a complete different consistency for your bone graft. Because if you're putting that in with allograft or with BMP, it gives you something that's, you know, it's got bone that you can actually push behind those implants that's been my experience i'm excited to start using that because i haven't been using the max grafter so i need to check that out that's awesome i mean we use them for a lot of implant cases uh, for everything just about well good i think that's been a good kind of summary of techniques that you can use to build up kind of deficient bone and ridges in the, the maxilla and the mandible any other comments on you know sequencing or kind of treatment planning these cases? I have a lot of young listeners. So, um, you know, and they're setting up their implant practice. And so I just have a few tips that I found that I think helped me out just to, in general. Like, you know, if you have um, an implant coordinator, your main assistant, like help them organize, like get your cases set up. But one of the things we do at all of our consults, we take photographs. It's the front tooth, even premolar or forward, even the molar. So we have an um, iMac computer in each office, each of my two offices. And we have a nice camera, like a 35 millimeter camera. We're using an iPhone. And so we have the system done for orthodontics. So some men comes in for a consult. We do our presentation, but my assistants, they all do it now. They take photographs. So they'll take a picture of the patient smiling. If I have to have talked to the dentist, I know who they are. They're looking at their pictures. But then we have lip retractors in every room and they'll retract the lips and show the gingiva, the soft tissue, because like if you do an anterior tooth, sometimes the gingiva is not either. If you take taking out number nine, it's a little recession. You're starting out with a more apical CEJ. You don't want to be accused of making her look worse. But you want to know where your tissue is. And so we, um, we take those photographs on our console. And then one person is in charge every day, basically. Or they download that camera and they print those photos out on a printer that has print paper in it, like photographic paper, we put them in the chart. We have a combination of like digital and paper. So when the patient comes in for the surgery, I've got that, you know, I told you earlier, I do a handwritten treatment plan. We, we tape that up so I know exactly what implants I'm doing. And we take their photographs and put it up there. Because sometimes you're doing a front implant and trying to decide how deep to put it. 
say, where do we start? You got that photograph right there to look at. That's kind of, that's just a good system to get, especially, you know, people are nervous about front implants. That's a good basic starting point to get photographs of your cases. And you'd be surprised how often you look at those. So that's the other thing, like if you're going to start doing full arches, you know, full arch is a big procedure. It's like for orthodontic surgery, when I used to go to the hospital, I'd write the hospital OR team a list of everything I needed. And even though this is your office, if you're, you and your staff are starting to do some full arches or big implant cases, and you don't have just a routine down, you and maybe your assistants can spend 10 minutes and write down every step of the procedure. I'm going to need 15 blades. I'm going to need this. I'm going to need this pickup. I need these drill bits, these screws, this material, and get it all in the room. And that way, when you ask for it, it's there. You're not like distracted and you're going to forget about releasing the tissue because you're waiting on an instrument. And so less stressful procedure if you got it all laid out. And like a big case, like a full arch, you got multi-unit abutments, all those things. There's a lot of things like I've heard of people doing full arches and they forgot to get the denture. You know, it took some of those teeth out. It's like, that would really suck. But this happens, you know. So, you know, they're so excited to do the full arch. Oh, yeah, I got a full arch. I'm all in four. Can't wait to do it. I do the surgery, but they forget about the teeth. You know, but you just got to do start to finish. So I have a big case. Like, even that Gore-Tex membrane case, I made a little list of what we need. You know, I still do that now and then with my team, because if you're ever, we're trying a lot of new different things and we make little lists out so you don't forget things. You're never too experienced to make a list and and make sure it's all organized. And also block a lot of time off, you know, when you're doing these newer procedures, block off a lot of spare time. You're never going to be upset that you have too much time. Because I think one of your things you said, a lot of people, as I'm meeting yesterday, someone goes, oh, I hate doing front implants. And it's like, I like it, you know, because it's like so rewarding. But, you know, I think you just got to block it off and time off and just set your time and plan it out. And you enjoy your implant cases and not stress out about them. Absolutely. I think when you're doing it like you do it and you have a nice routine and you feel super confident with your your treatment and you know it's successful, it's not so stressful than you know, compared to kind of willy-nilly doing it each time, there's always something missing, something goes wrong, and just, you know, bad outcomes is, is can make it pretty stressful. Do you do many tissue grafts in conjunction with your implants or not really? I do a lot of tissue grafts, yeah. Tony Sklar is an oral surgeon. He used to practice in Florida. I went to a lot of his courses. I learned it. Maurice Slama used to work in my office. I'm good friends with him and David Garber. He used to come to my office years ago. I hired him to do my tissue grass, and then he taught me how to do them, and I've learned how to do them. And so I do a lot of connective tissue grass where I'll make a little incision and that powder. I mean, I think every oral surgeon should learn to do that. It's not hard. You can read how to do it in a book and build up the tissue. There, um, The thing about connective tissue grass, there's a lot of dental say, hey, I've got some gingival recession. Can you bring the CEJ down? They do less than you think. You know, it's like the tissue graph for me is bulking out for aesthetics, contours. I, as an oral surgeon, I really can't graft around tissue to improve your, you know, that's a periodontal procedure. I'm not adept at bringing the tissue down around a tooth. So like a common one is someone's has scarred down tissue from a prior failed bone graft. I'll do a connective tissue graft so I have thicker tissue to do a block graft. I do a lot of test tissue grafts too, not a lot, but probably every other week to a free gingival graft to give me some tissue around the implants. 
And there's an inlay onlay graft where you take some attached tissue and the underlying connective tissue to build it up. So I think as you mature in your implant practice, you need to learn soft tissue grafting. I think that's just part of it because once you get it, now it's not that hard. It just takes a lot of time. Like a free gingival graft on a lower molar, I block like an hour and 20 minutes off for that. You know, you got to harvest it from the palate and it's a really meticulous procedure and you can't charge enough to make it worth your while. You're basically doing it to prep for your bone graft. You're coming back and your implant later. So, but you know, the problem is like the paradox don't like doing them. We as oral surgeons, we can put our patients to sleep and sedate them. We have good surgical skills. So I feel as an oral surgeon, if you learn to do your soft tissue grafting, you can do it around implants better than a paradigm because we just have good surgery skills. We have setups and with a sedation as well. You know, it's like, I mean, I mean, there's some paradigms that do beautiful jobs, but a lot of them in town, you know, they don't like doing them. They just want to do these implants and it's becoming a lost art. I feel in the paradigm field. Yep. Do you use 5-0 for those grafts as well? Or what do you use for tissue grafts? I only use a 5-0 on the block grafts, but like, I pretty much use 4-0 chromic for a lot of those procedures, the soft tissue. Once in a while, I use 5-0 chromic. I use it to pop out the tissue sometimes. I'll make a little tunnel, run an anterior implant, and just put a connected tissue graft and pump out the buckle tissue to make it match like the other side. Is this mostly you're talking for the anterior maxilla? You're just harvesting that from the palate? There's a really cool procedure called the VIP connected tissue graft. Tony Sklar taught me. He's got a video that he used to sell. DVD where you do a paddle, you actually swing some connected tissue graft from the palate, maintaining the supply to the greater paltry artery. There's a lot of people have published on that. And that you can, if you need to build up a big defect around the anterior maxilla, that actually is very useful. It works super well. <laughs> it's just hard to put a foot over because you got this big bump there for a week or two. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds like a great resource. Tony Sklar wrote this book. He retired, S-C-L-A-R. You've probably heard of him. He's got a textbook on all these procedures. He wrote maybe in the early 2000s or 90s, but I still think it's a classic textbook. It's got all these procedures. It's a big book. You can um, get that and learn how to do the techniques adequately from that book, I think. And then if you go to meetings, you'll understand what they're talking about. That's great. I agree that if we can get that experience and that tool of soft tissue grafting, I think, you know, why shouldn't we be doing that? Because we're the ones, like you're saying, doing the sedation, the implant, the bone grafting. It seems like a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, there's a learning curve on it, but, you know, it's like, it's not irreversible, what, like putting an imp- crooked implant in, you know? Well, that helps to run through grafting techniques, sinus ridge grafting and then some of the soft tissue stuff i really appreciate you kind of explaining that for us so i think picos has you know he's got that meeting i've mentioned in every podcast i've been with you in october he has that meeting and he usually has pre-meeting workshops and usually there's one on soft tissue grafting i mean this year it's all on full arch but like every other year but but the people that attend his meeting they also offer soft tissue there's some guys in europe that um, do some good soft tissue grafting procedures too. So there's some paradigms that put on some good courses in soft tissue grafting and they're good people to learn from the paradigm star. I have to tell you that I signed up for that course, Picos's Full Arch Symposium in uh, October, because 
he recommended it and I looked it up and signed up and I also got my buddies to sign up. So there you go. You have a, a I'll meet you down believer. there. I'm too. Yeah. Bring my lab back there. My partner. Yeah. Sounds great. I appreciate you making that recommendation. All right. Well, I think this has been a, a good summary for today. I'd love to connect with you again and hit some of the details. Maybe next time we could do, I don't know, zygomatic grafting or some of the other things or zygomatic implants. I'm sorry. And, and some of the other things that you're using to, to do full archery construction would be great. Yeah. I could talk to you about my learning curve and those zygomas too. That was pretty exciting to do it. And it's like, it's one of the coolest things I've learned. So excellent. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. Thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate it. Yeah. Grant, good talking to you again. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. I'd also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.